0: The Heidelberg Catechism. We we'll read together. Lord's Day three. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No. On the contrary, God created man good and in His image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness. So that they might rightly know God as creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. From where then did man's depraved nature come? From the fallen disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we're all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we're totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? yes unless we are regenerated by the spirit of god beloved congregation of our lord jesus christ nobody likes to be confronted with their sinfulness i read a story about a preacher who walked to church one sunday morning When a bird got him on the back of his arm, the stain stood out prominently on his dark suit, but the preacher never saw it. Some of the elders of the church saw it, but they didn't say anything. Some of the congregation members noticed, and a few people had a quiet chuckle. But again, no one said anything. They all felt it was impolite to say anything about it. Preacher went through the whole service without noticing a thing. Sin in our lives is a lot like that spot on the preacher's suit. Everyone knew about it but him. When it comes to our sins and shortcomings, we're not always self-aware. Often others around us see our sins more clearly than we do. But if we're hesitant to point out a stain on someone's clothes, we're even less inclined to point out sin in someone else's life. We're often scared to embarrass someone or to make them angry. Most of us are not very gracious at receiving criticism from others. We don't like it when others point out our faults. By nature, we're inclined to be proud people. We like to think well of ourselves. We don't like being confronted by our sins and shortcomings. And beloved, sometimes it's necessary to be made aware of our sinfulness. This world is filled with people who think that at heart, they're actually pretty good people. They overlook areas of their life where they blatantly break God's commandments about stealing or lying or living in sexual immorality. They're often not aware of the fact that they're living self-centered and self-indulgent lives. Because they consider themselves to be good people, they think God will accept them into heaven when they die. Their lack of awareness about their sins and misery results in never looking for a Savior to deliver them. This is going to be a problem for us as Christians as well. And that's why our catechism spends three Lord's Days on the section titled, Our Sins and Misery. Generally, this is not our most favorite part of the catechism, but it's necessary for us. Lord's Day 3 focuses on the cause and the extent of our sinfulness. It teaches us about our inherent depravity, about how by nature we are totally corrupt and inclined to all evil. We need to come to terms with this. So we learn to seek our life outside of ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ. For God's mercy and grace is only given to those who come to him with humble and contrite hearts. I preach to you the word of God under the following theme. God teaches us about the origin and extent of our st- sinfulness so that we'll look to him for his grace. We'll consider our inborn depravity. In God's renewing grace. In the early 400s AD, a British monk by the name of Pelagius rose to prominence in the church. Pelagius taught that man is born good. He believed that original sin did not taint human nature. He taught that man is in himself and by nature capable of choosing good. Pelagius' explanation for sin was that we learn how to sin from the bad example of others around us. But Pelagius saw each person as being a free agent, able to determine right from wrong, having the freedom to choose to do good or to do evil. His views were strongly opposed by the church father, Augustine, and were rejected by the Council of Carthage held in 418 AD. Pelagius's views are still regarded as, her- as heretical by the Roman Catholic Church today. The church partially agreed with Augustine on the doctrine of original sin. It said that by his sin Adam as the first man lost the original holiness he had received from God, not just for himself, but for all humans. Church agreed that original sin had an effect on all Adam's descendants but they disagreed on what that effect was. Augustine taught that due to Adam's sin, man's whole nature was corrupted, that man is incapable of any saving good, inclined to all evil. The Roman Catholic Church taught that as a result of original sin, human nature is weakened in its powers. It's subject to ignorance, it's, inclined to sin, but it disagreed with Augustine's position on total depravity. In effect, they adopted a semi-Pelagian position. We could summarize the teaching of Pelagius, the Roman Catholics, and of the Reformation as follows. Pelagius teaches man is born inherently good. He has the ability to do good or evil. The Roman Church says that man is born sick with an inclination to sin, but that with some help from God he can still choose and do good. The Reformation went back to the position of Augustine, teaching man is born dead in his sins. He does not have the ability to choose for God or to do any good of himself. In a way, the position of the Roman Catholic Church is consistent with some of their other teachings. At the time of the debate between Augustine and Pelagius, the church had already committed to the idea of the meritorious character of good works. If you're going to teach that a Christian must do good works to contribute to their salvation, well, then that same Christian must have the ability to do good works. To make this work, the Roman Catholic Church took a specific stance on baptism, It teaches that when someone is baptized, his original sin, as well as personal sins, are all forgiven. And at the same time, the person's baptism is given, that at a person's baptism, they're given what they call sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace is a supernatural disposition by which a person is able to love and to serve God. You might be wondering, does any of this matter? Well, it does. Because what you believe determines how you live your life. Let me illustrate that for you. Last year, I attended a funeral service for one of our neighbors in a Roman Catholic church. The priest leading the service acknowledged that he did not personally know the woman who had died. And he spoke about her in glowing terms on the basis of what he had learned about her from her family. He gave the family the assurance that she was saved, that she had been received by God in heaven. I don't believe it's right to make any kind of judgment about the eternal salvation of a neighbor, someone I didn't know very well. But it was interesting to me to see the basis upon which this priest concluded that this woman was saved. Even though it appeared that she had not attended church for many years, she was a member of the parish. Because she had been baptized, her sins had been washed away, and she had received what they call sanctifying grace. Her hard work and her love for her family were the evidence that this priest provided of her living a good life. Faith in Christ didn't really appear to be necessary. The service included a mass and included prayers for the Lord to receive her soul into heaven. The Roman Catholic Church, along with many other churches around us, do not believe in the total depravity of man. And the same is true for most people who live in the Western world today. Humanism teaches that man is inherently good. People blame the problems of society on a poor upbringing, or on a substandard education, or on the discrimination that certain people suffer. People are willing to admit that there are some psychopaths around who are totally evil. Examples would be men like Joseph Stalin, who murdered millions of his own countrymen, or Adolf Hitler, who was responsible for the Holocaust. But generally, they consider themselves and those around them to be good people. There's a big problem with that, beloved. If we are inherently good people, we don't need a savior. If you are unwilling to admit that by nature you are a sinner... There's no need for the grace of God or the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Yet sin is a dirty word in our society. It's becoming a neglected teaching in many Christian churches in our society today. Preachers like to talk about the love of God. They talk about God's grace but those are empty concepts without a doctrine of sin. What is love, but that God sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins? What is grace, other than that Christ came to give his life so we might share in his righteousness? Our catechism spends three Lord's Days on our sins and misery for a very specific reason. It's to teach us about the reality of our fallen state, that we might know our sins and seek redemption from them in Christ. It's to impress on us the origin, the extent of our depravity, so we humble ourselves before God, so we seek our salvation outside of ourselves in the only Savior. It's to show us that we deserve to come under the severe judgment of God, to suffer everlasting punishment of body and soul. So we learn true thankfulness for God's mercy and grace in Christ. To really understand our depravity, we first need to see the glorious manner in which God created man. God created man good and in his image. This doesn't mean that we physically look like God. It means that God created us to be like him. Our mind was enlightened we had a wholesome knowledge of God and of all spiritual things. Our heart and will were upright. Our every inclination was to love God and our neighbor. Our desires were pure. We wanted to do what pleased God, to live a God glorifying life. In paradise, Adam and Eve were able to live in perfect communion with God, their creator. So, what happened? Why are we no longer able to live with God in perfect communion? If God made us good, where did our wickedness come from? Our catechism asks that in question answer seven. It asks from where then did man's depraved nature come? The answer is from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and even paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we're all conceived and born in sin. The source of our depravity is the fall into sin. To understand the nature and problem of sin, we must understand what Adam and Eve did. God commanded them not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God put a restriction on this tree in order to see if man would freely serve him from the heart. God did not want to be served by pre-programmed robots He gave man a free will. He gave man a choice as to whether or not to serve him. Did man love God enough to be willing to submit himself to God's command? Or would the creature desire to be like the creator? We know the answer. Man failed the test. He fell for Satan's temptation. He disobeyed God's command. And so he became wicked and perverse. In the fall into sin, our nature became totally corrupt. Because of the fall of our first parents, we're all conceived and born in sin. Kansadort summarizes the scripture's teaching on the effects of the fall. It makes clear that by rebelling against God, man brought on himself blindness, horrible darkness, futility, and perverseness of judgment of his mind, wickedness, rebellion, and stubbornness in his will and heart, and impurity in all his affections. Thus the canons of Dort describes how man's nature was corrupted, so he became depraved in mind and heart and will. The point here, beloved, is that by nature we are dead in our sins, incapable of doing any good. By nature, we're inclined to all evil. With a fall into sin, man has become totally corrupt. Our minds were darkened, so we no longer truly knew God or acknowledged Him. Our hearts became self focused, so we care mainly about what's good for me. Our will was inclined to do what's evil, to follow our own sinful desires even if that's offensive to God or hurtful to our neighbor. The point is, by nature, we're no longer able to do anything good. By nature, we are spiritually dead. Something we don't like to hear. It offends our pride. Our nature is such we often tend to minimize our sins and shortcomings, to make a big deal about the good things that we've done. So let me ask a few questions. How aware are you of the sins that you commit each day? When you pray, do you ask God to forgive your sins? And if so, what sins? Do you examine yourself and confess specific sins that you've done before the throne of grace? Or are you living... In denial. We're not always honest with ourselves when it comes to our sins. Just as a preacher didn't see the spot on his suit, so we often don't see those glaring flaws others see so clearly in us. The problem is not that we're always completely unaware of our sins and shortcomings, the problem is that we so often don't want to admit the truth about ourselves. How do you respond, beloved, when your conscience pricks you because you know that what you're doing is wrong? Do you repent and turn away from your sin? Or do you ignore your conscience and try to silence it so you can do what you want? How do you respond when a parent or a family member or friend humbly tries to point out your sin? Do you graciously receive what they're saying? Or do you bite back at him or her? Someone once said, God made, people, God made man to love people and to use things. Instead, man loves things and uses people. Man has become selfish, centered only on what doing what pleases him. The fall into sin has profoundly affected us. Instead of exercising dominion over creation, sin has begun to reign in us, so we obey its evil desires. Those whom God made rulers over creation have become slaves of sin. The fall into sin has affected our thinking, it has affected our character, it's affected our will. Our minds are being corrupted, our hearts made impure, our desires set contrary to the will of God. Our nature has become totally corrupt. And one of the greatest tragedies of all is that we become ignorant of this truth about ourselves. We pride ourselves in our wisdom, our goodness, our freedom. We're lost, and often we don't even realize it. Yes, beloved, we need to know the extent of our depravity, Of ourselves, we are capable of the grossest sins. We should never be surprised by any sin showing itself, even in the church. Even within the church of Jesus Christ, people fall into grievous sins. Sins of the heart. Anger, jealousy, hatred, lust, coveting what belongs to your neighbor. Sins of the mouth. Blasphemy, slander and gossip. Sins of the body. Abortion, sexual immorality, abuse. No, beloved, please don't look around you, accusing others of those sins. Look to yourself. Recognize that by nature, you are totally corrupt. Each one of us is capable of sinning in any of the ways I've just mentioned. By nature, our corruption is absolute If it were not for the grace of God, our lives would be filled with all manner of sin. For our nature is corrupt. It brings forth all manner of sinful thoughts and words and deeds in us. In our first point, we've considered our inborn depravity. In our second point, we'll consider God's renewing grace. The purpose of our Lord's Day is not to send us into gloom and despair. Lord's Day 3 does not focus on our depravity in order to discourage us. Instead, it teaches us about the source and extent of our sinfulness to teach us to look to God for His grace. For if we truly know ourselves to be corrupt by nature, it will encourage us to look to Jesus Christ for salvation. It will teach us how badly we need the regenerating work of His Spirit in our lives. In question 8 of our Catechism, we're asked, But are we so corrupt that we're totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? The answer to this question is yes. Yet the answer is qualified. The good news of salvation is proclaimed to us in the word that follows, the word unless. This word shows us that there's a way out. Unless... We are regenerated by the Spirit of God. There is a way out of our total depravity. It's what our catechism calls regeneration, being born again. We learn more about regeneration from Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus in John 3. Nicodemus saw Jesus as a teacher who came from God, but he did not see Jesus as the Messiah, as the Redeemer of his people. And so Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here Jesus is speaking about our regeneration, about our need to be born again. Jesus indicated to Nicodemus that the work of the Holy Spirit is central in being born again. Regeneration is the act of God alone, by which he renews the human heart, making it alive when it was dead. This work of the Holy Spirit in us does not depend on us in any way. There is no contribution that we can make from our side to the new life God gives us. As it says in the Kansas of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 12, regeneration is something which God works in us without us. Through the mighty working of the Holy Spirit that we're born again, So once again, we can begin to reflect God's image in our daily lives. It's interesting to note the phenomenal change that takes place in being born again. The Greek uses the word metamorphosis to describe this transforming work of the spirit. It's the same word that biologists use to describe how caterpillars change into butterflies. We become changed by the incomprehensible mystery and the wonder of the new birth just as an ugly caterpillar is changed into a beautiful butterfly the apostle paul describes the effects of being born again in our reading from ephesians 4 paul says that you must no longer walk as the gentiles do in the futility of their minds he explains why people who do not know christ live as they do he writes there darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous and give themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's different with us as Christians. As Paul says, that is not the way that you learned Christ. Paul explains that in Christ we are to put off our old self. We're to do away with the old sinful nature, with the corruption of our hearts, minds, and wills. How are we to do that? Paul says that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That's not our own work, beloved. It's the Spirit who creates this new life in us. He helps us to do away with the sinful practices of our corrupt nature, so more and more we can image God in our daily lives. Paul describes the process of our sanctification, of being made holy. By the mighty work of his Spirit, God begins a new life in us. Through his work, we're transformed, we're changed from the inside out begins with the renewal of our minds. In Ephesians 1, Paul prays that God might give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we might know Him and His grace towards us. God takes our minds that were darkened by sin. He enlightens them so we might once more know Him. God changes our hearts. By the power of the Spirit, we put to death our tendency towards self-indulgence. We realize life's not about me, but that instead God stands in the center. Our prime purpose in life is to glorify God, to love, fear, and honor Him in everything we do. We were created to rightly know God, to heartily love Him, to live in close communion with Him. By the Spirit's help, that once more becomes the focus of our lives. God transforms our will, our desires. He helps us to see that giving in to Satan's temptations always backfires. To know that the world's pleasures are fleeting. We will never find satisfaction and contentment in the things of this life. God directs us to Christ, our Savior, to the comfort, the peace, the joy, and the hope we have in Him. The Spirit transforms our will. So that instead of pleasing ourselves, our desire is to serve God. You remember Nicodemus who came to speak with Jesus at night? He was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, Jesus told him he would not see the kingdom of God unless he was born again. Pharisees believed themselves to be righteous before God through their own good works. Before Jesus spoke to him, Nicodemus would have considered himself as sharing in the kingdom of God. He faced the same problem that Pelagius and the Roman Catholic Church and many humanists faced. He did not know himself to be a sinner. He did not know that by nature he was totally corrupt. Without a knowledge of our sins we will never seek Christ. Without an acknowledgement of the extent of our corruption we'll never humble ourselves before God and seek our life outside of ourselves in Jesus Christ. Our catechism teaches us about how by nature we're inclined to hate God and our neighbor. It does so To bring us to our knees, that the Spirit may work a humble and contrite heart in us, so we turn to God and seek His mercy and grace in Jesus Christ, so we look to Him to cause us to be born again. Beloved, by the mighty working of His Spirit, God begins a new life in us. When we're born again, we become new people in thinking in direction, in commitment, in relationships, in many other ways. Rather than being slaves of the sinful flesh, we submit our lives more and more to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the guidance of his Spirit. Being born again does not mean that we're made perfect. We will continue to sin, but we will not practice sin as a way of life. Our orientation will be to God and his service. By the Spirit's power, we will rightly know God, heartily love him, and more and more live lives of thankfulness and of praise to him. Amen. Let's respond to the Gospel message by singing together from Psalm 51 stanzas 1 and 4.